Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 45 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's election day. It's election day. We have some uh, cool stuff on the ballot here in Texas and here in Austin. Uh, and apparently we actually get to vote for some of it. Uh, you know, in con law this morning, I don't know, Steve and I, listeners, we were both teaching con law in our respective classrooms this morning. I was Did ironically you? teaching Shelby County versus Holder. Oh, were you? Well, I gave a sort of a tip of the day. I said, look, let's let's go over the ballot. Uh, and of course, this is a public institution. I did not recommend anyone vote any particular way, but I told are, them are you, wait, wait, wait. to vote. Are, are you suggesting that it would be illegal for a public employee to, I don't know, tweet about who someone should vote for, like I, I know, should mm. like like w- w- if the president goes on Twitter and tells people to vote for a particular candidate, uh, I don't know that that's problematic nearly as much as it would be problematic if you were actually in a classroom and you're yeah. a state employee using the class time to do it. So I was very careful of that line. Uh, but there's one thing on the Texas Constitution, so that there's all these ballot propositions, right? Because our Constitution at the state level here has all sorts of stuff. You know, about the, my favorite one, whether or not our Constitution should be amended to specify that professional sports teams can have raffles for charity. And so, you know, that, of course, as Edmund Randolph once said, you want the uh, the broad principles. You need to draft the Constitution of these broad principles like raffles for sports teams. <laughs> but there's also that one, I think you've seen it, too, about uh, empowering the Texas legislature to pass a rule that would in turn oblige Texas courts to allow the state to participate in any lawsuit in which a state law is called into a constitutional question. Yeah, and and then in that part, I think, am I right? There's a federal statute that's similar, a notification of constitutional yep. challenge. Yes. But then the Texas uh, provision would, would go on and would provide that the court can't actually strike something down as unconstitutional for what? Like, like 45, 45 days, days right? Yeah. And so, and so, I mean, my reaction is, like, the notification part makes perfect sense. Yeah. I don't know about telling a court, hey, sit on it for 45 days. Like, by that logic, you know, you could freeze even, like, dire emergency challenges to a yeah. state law. It seems like it's just more a matter of, like, not quite artful enough drafting that what yep. you'd want is the notification, there should be some kind of period where you can't have the notification go out on one day yep. and then such and such is struck down as unconstitutional. Okay, so a week. But, yeah, or, but you also maybe need an emergency opt-out, you know, what so if just, it's a TRO? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. But so, so, Bobby, this is actually not the Texas Constitutional Law Podcast. Wait. Wow. I'm in the wrong office. I know. I'll yeah. be right back. <laughs> Sandy Levinson is right down the hall. Um, <laughs> well, what have we got to talk about besides yeah, that? I mean, it's, it's not that it's a quiet week. It's that it's sort of like, a, a, I mean, in any other year, this would still be a really interesting, important week in national yeah. security law land. And it's just like so tame compared to... We are so spoiled, man. Spoiled is one word for it. Spoiled might be just the word for it. If you mean it in the pejorative, like, ew, like I want to throw my that fridge. out yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, listen, you know, we're talking about a week where the two biggest headlines, you know, since our last emergency episode, oh, right, um, have been Carter Page's bizarre, meandering, <laughs> I don't even know what to call it, testimony before the House Intelligence Committee, and the ongoing you know, saga that is the ethics kerfuffle at Guantanamo with the military commissions. So yeah, both of those seem almost, you know, this is the f- the familiarity breeds... Uh, contempt? Yeah, contempt. Surreality? Just, it's the boiling the frog deal, right? The, the, we're a bunch of frogs have been boiling for a while. These things don't even seem that interesting at a certain point compared well, to some of the... Well, I, I, I'll respectfully disagree on whether they're interesting. I oh, think the, right. the, the sort of... It's hard to pick apart the clear legal implications other than just we as interested observers, yeah. you know, have things to talk about. Well, that's right. So we'll ch- we'll do our best to to sort of glean, we'll sift 
We'll sift for the nuggets of national security law that are embedded within, <laughs> somewhere somewhere in these stories. And, uh, and in between, we'll make a sandwich out of it because in between talking about the latest with uh, the Mueller investigation and the latest shenanigans at Guantanamo, we'll talk in between about uh, the continuing story of both the, Benga- the second Benghazi defendant, Mustafa Alimam, who is now in the United States, and then the the interesting sort of parallel unfolding of the Saipov, and this is the guy, the terrorist in New York, um, the debate over whether it was really proper to have him as someone going into the criminal justice system. It's fascinating to kind of compare those two. So we'll update that story. I'd say that none of these are really a, you know, a long, sustained discussion, so prepare for a short episode punctuated at the end uh, for those who could stand it by... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna start trying to actually uh, take this into a little more personal trivia, and so we're starting with some favorite movies. And I think our our, our agreement was today that the genre was comedies. Bobby, favorite comedies. That's what I'm prepared to talk Top about. Top three, um, and we have not shared our notes. So just like our our unplanned mutual prediction that the Greek freak Giannis Antetokounmpo will be the NBA MVP, we'll see if if our tastes align. I'm going on a limb and saying no. No. I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I predict, the, I think the, like the high side is maybe we have one overlapping. I, if the over-under is 0.5 overlapping movies on our list <laughs> of three, I'm going with the under on comedies. Now, right. I actually could imagine like dramas or other yeah. genres where we might actually, like sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I think we both know that, you know, The Wrath of Khan is on there. Yeah, absolutely. So. I'm with you on that. But I bet on comedies we diverge. But That's just because one of us is funny. <laughs> But which one? Uh, <laughs> neither, says both of our wives. <laughs> and every listener. Uh, and, and by the way, with that, let me say happy early anniversary to my own wife, Karen. Oh, hey. Congratulations. Uh, we're six years on Sunday. You know, uh, the great thing for Heather and I is we got married in 2000, uh-huh. early in 2000. Uh, so it's easy to so the math is very easy. I can always call it very quickly. You know, we've been married 17 years. Uh, we got married in the same month and year, so 11, uh, 11 2011. Oh, very so nice. that helps a little bit. Oh. All right. All right. Enough. Enough. <laughs> All right. The Mueller investigation. Uh, so uh, it, was not, it was not a Mueller Monday. No, I, I'm, you know, these things are, it's not a TV show. The, the presidency is being run like a TV show. The Mueller investigation is not. Um, we shouldn't expect there to be sort of the weekly narrative driving the headlines. Um, but notwithstanding that, I think that a lot of us are watching to see what might happen with uh, uh, Michael Flynn. Um, can we talk, Steve, about the Foreign Agents Registration Act? And, mm. and, you know, early on in this podcast series, we talked about it a fair amount. It's been a long time. Can you remind us just what is this statute? What are the key things people ought to know about it? And who's in jeopardy here? Yeah, I mean, so there was, I think this is partly motivated by, I think NBC News had a story over the weekend that the perhaps next public target of the Mueller investigation is Mike Flynn, perhaps his son, Mike Flynn Jr. Um, whatever else one thinks about Michael Flynn, you know, I think we've there's long been, I think, a widely held view that the statute that he's in the most obvious jeopardy under is, is FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. This is a statute that dates back to 1938, um, and that was enacted by Congress on the eve of World War II, when there were actually real concerns that there were Nazi elements Absolutely. Um, behind the scenes pushing different kinds of propaganda and trying to influence U.S. policy. The Bund. Exactly. Um, especially toward non-intervention, toward neutrality, toward not you know, providing arms to the, the Wait, European. Are you, are you saying a foreign power mm-hmm. was trying to influence our politics, mm-hmm. trying to affect whether we should have more of a non-interventionist? 
I know. Pull back from world affairs. What, what a dated, what a dated and, and anachronistic consideration. Fascinating. So, so the the most important thing. I mean, I, I wrote a long primer about Farah in April on just security. I, I certainly encourage folks to go read it. Um, I actually think the even better publication, the Justice Department Inspector General, has a really good um, report and a really troubling report from September 2016 about how Farah has worked and how it's enforced. But I think the most important thing. For Wait, folks, can I ask yeah. about that? Why the Inspector General? What, what was? Do you know anything about the context? There was a request for an investigation about why there had been so few FARA prosecutions and oh. why there had been, you know, why enforcement had been such a problem. Um, and so I don't, I don't remember exactly where the request came from, but the IG did this whole long report on sort of obstacles to meaningful enforcement of FARA and what the problems were. Interesting. And, and so you're saying there was a recognized pattern that this isn't brought very often. It's not brought. Well, so, so let me sort of, let me get there, because I think, I think it'll help to, to flesh out how the statute works. Um, the statute is, for the most part, not a limit on conduct. Um, right. That is to say, it doesn't say that there are things you just cannot do, period. Um, with one exception, you can't hold a federal office if you're an agent of a foreign power. That could be where Michael Flynn gets into trouble. Um, yeah, and that's whether you disclose it or not. You can't. You just can't. Right. Um, instead, the rest of the statute is directed at disclosure. Right. The rest of the statute is basically a information-forcing, transparency-seeking statute where any person who is engaged in any political activities, and there are a bunch of definitions to, to, to mark out what those are, um, on behalf of a foreign agent, and this could be a foreign government, it could be a foreign private citizen, it could be a foreign corporation, mm-hmm. um, has to disclose to the government in a filing that is public both the identity of the foreign enterprise on whose behalf they are operating, what they're getting paid, and why they're getting paid. Hmm. And the idea is that, listen, if the Kazakh government, right, wants to pay a bunch of lobbyists in the U.S. to push for a particular kind of, I don't know, trade reform. Fine, right? But we should at least know that when John Smith lobbying firm yeah. is pushing this deal, they're doing it with the backing of the Kazakh government. Right. Right. So so the idea is the voters and the members of Congress can make up their own minds on the propriety of these foreign entanglements, but they are entitled to know, right? So far as meant to be an information-forcing statute. Right, and, and so you see there at a sort of a high level of generality kind of a, a, an affinity between that structure and that concern and the current controversy surrounding social media and these advertisements that are yep. coming out of Russia and are being portrayed as if they're coming from American sources. Yep. Now listen, the, there, there's, there is a concern that FARA sometimes goes too far, right? That some of the reporting requirements, it's right? In, it's in the name, it, it can't is, help it, it. It is in the name. Um, right, there's uh, humanitarian organizations, right, charity, uh, you know, nonprofits, right, working overseas who might be hindered in their work if they had to disclose, right, every single piece of it. Um, so it's not perfect, right? Mm-hmm. But the real issues that have aris- arisen with FARA historically have been on the enforcement side. Um, so historically, um, especially since the 1960s, DOJ's approach to FARA has been that the goal of the statute is vindicated if people come clean. And so instead of prosecuting uh, individuals who have failed to register, who have failed to comply with the reporting requirements, DOJ's enforcement approach has been to say, hey, you screwed up. Um, now fix it. Okay. Right? And if you fix it, we'll leave you alone. And so the idea has been that DOJ has been pursuing compliance by, you know, by sort of agreeing not to prosecute in exchange for full disclosures from those who had failed to file previously. That's that's an odd stra- – I, I can see the appeal in particular cases, but for that to be the pattern over time, I, mean, are there, I can't think of another context where that's sort of how we roll with the criminal law. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, it's, I think it's partly a reflection of – I mean, the statute is not meant to punish conduct, right? The statute yeah. is meant to encourage transparency. And I think DOJ's view is, you know, as opposed to having to try to fight these cases in court, which is often difficult – 
because um, they have to prove what people knew and when they knew it, right? Yeah. Um, better to just vindicate, you know, the statute is better served, right, by getting full, complete, non-judicially compelled compliance. It does seem to me that if it, once it becomes clear that's how it works, then the only rational thing for someone who's got an unsavory client is, Not I'll disclose it if and when I DOJ caught. comes knocking. That, and that's, and that's, so that's where the DOJ Inspector General report, I think, is pretty damning, right? Yeah. So, so the, the under-enforcement, I think, is in some regards because of that mentality, and in some respects, according to the DOJ Inspector General, is a resource problem, right? Yeah. That it's just, you know, the FARA unit is part of the National Security Division. This isn't their time. This, this is, is not, not their time. The, right? this well, is not it the, didn't used to be. I hope it's becoming. Um, well, that's the question. So, so there actually are starting to be proposals on the Hill to um, booster, right, bolster, otherwise sort of ramp up FARA. Um, the Pierce, so but why is it a problem? So, so that in the Manafort indictment, we talked about this briefly last week, there was a FARA violation. Um, both his failure to file initially and the sort of um, government's claim that when he filed his belated registration statement, um, it was materially false and misleading, right? And that latter thing is the more classic case that DOJ brings these days, right? Even once they've co-opted you into voluntary, comp- into yeah. voluntary compliance, if you still hide the ball. Yeah. Now you're now, now you're, you're toast. Now you're toast. And, yeah. and from DOJ's perspective, it's a lot easier to prove that, right? Because now you've yeah. got a record. Right, right. And so you're going to get some false statements to the FBI. Right. You're also going to get the FARA violation. Right. So that's Manafort, right? That's that's yeah. the Manafort and Gates indictment. Um, there's a widespread assumption because, you know, we know for a fact, right, that Michael Flynn got paid 500 and some odd thousand dollars, right, by the Turkish government. We, you know, I think have widespread um, uh, sort of suspicion that he was also being paid by various Russian interests, either before or even once he became national security advisor. So I think the assumption has always been that Flynn has a, you know, Farah sort of Damocles hanging over yeah, his head. right. And the question is just when's it going to fall and, and for what? Yeah, exactly. Now, it did, you mentioned this sort of two-step process or two-tiered process. Is it clear that with, if it's clear that Flynn at least took money from the Turks, um, is it clear that he's had the chance to come clean, yeah. and then further had problems? So that, it's not clear yet, right? So, so yeah. we know Flynn did file a belated FARA registration with regard to the Turkish money, which is the only reason we found out about it. Um, by the way, every time we talk about the Turks, I think of, of they might be giants. Uh, yeah. right? no, nobody knows but the Turks. <laughs> um, by the so, way, for, the, for those you know listening who of our vintage who actually know who they might be giants uh, are um they may not know if they don't have kids how much music they do for children's shows now it's right. kind of hilarious to be listening think like, you know your kids watching a show in the other room think I, I recognize that voice oh it's they might be giants <laughs> that's, that's so nobody's... weird uh, why did Constantinople get the works all right um <laughs> so 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 to, to sort of make a long story short on the turkey point i think there are two different problems the first is whether the belated registration was was completely accurate and we just don't know yeah the second is whether um as of january 20th he was still technically acting as an agent of the turkish government in which case the belated registration wouldn't help him right because he shouldn't be a government official 18 usc point. section 219 says it is a felony to hold yeah. a federal office while you are an agent of a foreign power registration or not yeah. So so some of this is probably going to drop on him sooner or later. I yeah. think almost almost undoubtedly. And the only interesting thing is that some you get this hint this weekend through NBC News, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone else picked up on it and said yes, we've heard that too. It's about to happen. So I, I'm not surprised that nothing yet's come out. Um, but we said last week. I mean, I, you know, it's, it seems to me that the I mean, so. In the, in the worldview where Manafort was the obvious first person in the investigation, Flynn is the obvious next step. Yep. Of course, you know, no one saw Papadopoulos coming. And right. so that, that doesn't mean that it will be Flynn. And there is the extra complication of if he's been cooperating for some period of time, 
who else might be very yeah, much in the crosshairs. Right. Yeah. So, so all this to say, right, Farah, I think, is a statue, is one of those many statues that I think has been sort of dormant for a while that various elements of the Trump campaign and Trump administration have brought back to the surface. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from the Mueller investigation, unless there's any other Mueller-related uh, tidbits. I'm sure there that. will be or are. I mean, you know, I just want to say, folks, the Carter Page testimony before the House Intelligence oh my Committee. God. Okay, so wait, what was that one? It turned out it was, it was a fake, but it was so <laughs> So Ashley Feinberg has yes. a brilliant tweet. Um, uh, Ashley Feinberg, by the way, it. who added Jim Comey's Twitter account, and now Comey is, is for real on Twitter. Okay, so I don't know if she created this this uh, FACO transcript or, or who did it, but it kind of, it sort of plays with the idea that Paige was testifying and saying a lot of weird, she keeps talking about like, oh, the terrorist threats against me. And so there's this, Fake conclusion to the, the the hearing that includes him kind of going off on a rant about you know I've killed before and I'll kill again and then you know Schiff supposedly says wait what and I invoke the fifth goodbye um, so I think we've we've determined this is not real this right? is not real but fake news friends but it took a little while um, I mean the, well so, the, what's funny is like it seemed plausible that maybe totally pl- because it, because it was so weird I mean so so just I, I don't want to get into the substance of it because I just I just don't even know what the substance is other than to say here is someone who is clearly up to his eyeballs in this investigation, who for whatever reason refuses to be represented by counsel, who keeps giving TV interviews and keeps testifying under oath before congressional committees without the assistance of counsel, who tries sometimes to invoke his privilege against self-incrimination but doesn't seem to know how to do it. Um, and I just, I, Carter Page, I don't know what to make of him other than that, like it's, it's, the, it's the most surreal part of this incredibly surreal story. You know, I, I really do wonder, like, is, is, does he need help, not just of a legal variety, but of maybe a medical variety? It, there is some cause for concern about, because this behavior is otherwise inexplicably against his own self-interest. It's not... Not impossible that he's just got terrible judgment, but one wonders. Um, well, we'll see what happens there. All right. So speaking of seeing what's going to happen and terrible judgment. Um, <laughs> that could segue into just about anything we talk about, including really our own little trivia sections at the end. In- including the very existence of this podcast. Good point. Um, so so when last we, we, we spoke, right, um, Judge Spath in the Guantanamo Military Commissions had ordered General Baker, the Brigadier General who's the Chief Defense Counsel, um, to be confined to his trailer for 21 days in contempt for Baker's refusal to testify as part of a hearing into Baker's decision to allow three civilian lawyers to resign from the defense team representing al-Nashiri in this capital Guantanamo Military Commission case. Including the learned counsel. Including the learned counsel without whom the case really can't proceed. Right. Okay. Um, some stuff has happened since then. <laughs> so, so, so I can't even keep track of how many different authorities are involved here. No, I'll, I'll start with one. So This is an interjurisdictional cluster you-know-what. It, it, it's actually, you know, it, it looks like an issue spotter on some final exam that just has these A wild— A Fed Courts exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the way, can that be the title of this episode, an interjurisdictional you-know-what? An interjurisdictional cluster, cluster you-know-what? You know what? Oh, no, that's good. If you can if you can spell that for me, yeah, we okay. can do that. Um, C-L-U. So our mutual friend, Harvey Rishkoff, the convening authority, uh, in one of the earliest things that happened, Happened after our last episode, he what's the word here? Is it commuted? He he overturned. He or, he he did something that freed General Baker from his trailer. Yeah, although, although I think you're I think you're skipping over the provocation for Harvey's move, right? So Baker had filed a habeas petition shortly after we recorded. Oh, um, okay, sure. Right, and Baker's habeas petition was actually heard by your Judge, friend and mine, Judge Lambert, UT law grad. Hook him. Hook him. 
Um, and I think the sense, everyone sent to the hearing was that Judge Lamberth, although he, so the hearing was at like 5 p.m. on Thursday, and Lamberth was going to reserve judgment until 2 p.m. on Friday. But I think he made it kind of clear yeah. that the government did not want to get to 2 p.m. Friday with Baker still Judge Lamberth is not afraid Subtle. to give the government a hard time. No. When it needs to get a hard time, he's going to give it to him. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that if Harvey was going to do what he's going to do anyway. Maybe. It could but, be. But, but what a coincidence. One hour before Lamberth was supposed to rule, right, um, Harvey announces that he is – um, suspending the confinement part of the contempt citation. Right, but just but just the confinement part. So the, the contempt citation still hangs over him. Hence the habeas petition, which Lambert, I believe, is holding in abeyance pending further developments. Not which, sure what those developments are. I, I think that that's probably how everyone feels about this. <laughs> Not sure who's the ball. Like, there's like three balls. They're in five different courts right. speaking. Get it? Courts. Like uh, um, there's another court. Now, how, how does Indiana get involved? Yeah. In this? Okay. So, this, so then things got really weird. <laughs> um, although this is actually only the second of our three act play over the weekend. So apparently, so Rick Kamen. Um, was the learned counsel on the Al-Nashri team. That is to say, he was the, the capital experienced lawyer who was part of the team. Um, Rick lives in Indianapolis. Um, lovely city, Indianapolis. Used to have a good football team, um, although who am I to talk? Um, <laughs> you are a Giants fan. Uh, Glass houses, my friend. Glass houses. They might be Giants. Um, all right. <laughs> no, that's good. All right. So... Um, so, so Kamen um, filed a habeas petition, right? So, so part of what's going on here is Spath also ordered Kamen and the two yeah. other civilian lawyers to appear at the Mark Center, which is the Alexandria, Virginia-based sort of stateside headquarters of the military commissions, to testify via video conference as part of a hearing, I think, next Monday, or maybe I have my date wrong, but right. maybe this week. Um, and I think the concern that Kamen and the other lawyers have is once they appear – they can be taken into custody. Right, and you could you open the door to all sorts of who knows what. Now, at least it's not come down to Guantanamo, which I think was his original right. position. So right. his view is he's he's laid it off right. a little Instead, bit. Right, we'll, instead we'll send you a Navy brig in Norfolk. Yeah, um, exactly. So so Cameron filed a habeas petition oh, in Indianapolis. Sort of, a, sort of an anticipatory. Like a preemptive habeas. Pre- yeah, I, I like the idea, but um, why not? It sounds efficient. Let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Uh, except that why not seek relief with Judge Lamberth. Well, so that's, I mean, so there's a weird question, right? In whose custody, you know, is he? Multi-district litigation. Right, so go to the JPML, the judicial panel. Anyway, so so Rick Hammond got a, a federal judge in Indianapolis to issue a stay. Um, preventing that is so Milligan esque, right? It's Indiana. Uh, <laughs> preventing the military commission from, I think, exercising any coercive authority over Camin, pending further order of the court. So now we have a you know sort of not quite habeas petition for um, General Baker in D.C. And not uh, we preemptive, have a preemptive habeas, habeas with a stay in I guess it's the is it the Southern District of Indiana? I've lost track of which Indiana district court it is. Okay, a federal district court in Indiana doesn't matter which one. Um, and we have and Judge Spath not to be out spathed. And credit for that term goes to our new UT colleague Aaron O'Connell. Oh, does he have um, a? He's verified a, it. He, he has he has, he has a great tweet about about um, the verb the transitive verb to to spath or to get spathed. Oh, so um, Baker was spathed. Baker so. was spathed. Well, so Baker is not the last person to be spathed. So yesterday, because apparently Judge Spath is not done. Um, 
He issued an order compelling the government to produce Ellen Yaroshevsky, right, the law professor whose ethical opinion apparently is at the under, is at the heart of this whole brouhaha. She's the one that gave the professional ethics opinion to the, the, to the three lawyers. It set off this whole thing right. saying you can't ethically proceed in this case right. because of the prospect of the government monitoring attorney-client communications, which based is based on the, facts we still don't know. Which, which is to me the thing that drives me nuts about this whole thing is there isn't there's a factual dispute out there, or right. maybe it's in dispute, maybe it's not. Right. We need some litigation to to test it right and uh so so, so, spath, so spath says dear government so the order is actually written very interestingly he doesn't say he, the order is not directly issued to yaroshevsky and also an aba lawyer who was involved in providing consultation the order is issued to the government to produce yaroshevsky yeah, and the aba lawyer that's odd that it makes me super odd it's basically saying go arrest them Right, or compel them. Compel what them. are they, material witnesses? Is that but the... it's not, so So he invokes no legal authority, right, even though there is a recalcitrant witness statute that you could theoretically sure. try to argue applies in this circumstance. Although I wonder, is that part of the, the military commission's authority? No, right, okay. so we're back to, so, yeah. so he issued an order yesterday compelling, quote, the government, unquote, to produce somehow, some way, these two private citizens who have no affiliation with the commissions themselves other than that they, were, that they gave advice when asked right, yeah. to counsel, at a hearing that, mind you, the people who sought their advice won't be participating in. So in, I missed the part. Did you say they're supposed to go to the remote facility? In Alexandria. To, yeah. <laughs> so if so, I'm so them, if you're, I, am so, not, I am not getting on that train. So is it possible, like, right now that Ellen is, like, wandering around New York, like, dodging, you know, what, U.S. Marshals or something? I'll put it this, <laughs> this way. This is ridiculous. I, I, I suspect that there's a habeas petition with both of their names on it waiting, waiting to be to filed. And, heavens. and so you have also, to. Also, we can have a third one. We can get it going in New York. Manhattan. No, I mean, we could theoretically have three pending habeas petitions in D.C., New York, and Indianapolis, all because Judge Spath thinks that he has the authority to reach out from Guantanamo and push all these people around. So at the end of the let's step back and kind of go to a higher altitude look at this. The original <laughs> dispute is there There may be, if the allegations are true, there's an, there's an inappropriate monitoring of attorney-client communications. Yes, that is the bottom of this whole thing. What is the right way to get to the bottom of this? Or is it really the case that the, this this inquiry ended with General Baker deciding he was persuaded this is a problem? Because that's right. the part that I have right. trouble with. So I have I think, a lot of problems with I think that. The, listen, I, I think... I don't have a good answer, and, and, and that's probably scary. Um, it seems to me that the parties should figure out a way to get this issue to the D.C. Circuit, right, to get a conclusive resolution of the underlying merits question yes. from the court that by statute is the supervisory authority over the commission. And so whether that's, you know, somehow like getting Spath to issue an order that's appealable yeah. or the government consenting, I mean, it wouldn't create jurisdiction, but at least not vehemently opposing a writ of mandamus, like somehow they should create a vehicle and you don't want it to be one of these habeas petitions. Well, can it be the contempt? I mean, could Baker, can it get there through the contempt proceeding against Baker? Maybe, except that remember Baker's whole argument is that the court, the military commission lacks jurisdiction to hold him in contempt for both personal and subject matter reasons. If either of those are right, you can't go through that to get to the merits. Yeah, but it seems like that has to be litigated. So Pat Spath thinks he has the authority. Right. Several people, a number of people have argued like, no, no, it's, you might think that. It might seem normal. Because you'd like to think that, you'd, wouldn't you? Exactly. You'd like to think that because that's how it would work. If By the gonna, way, that's a spoiler alert. It, oh, interesting. <laughs> nice. Good call. Okay, I'm, I'm revising my list already. Um, 
You would think that because it's how it would go down in a court martial or an Article Three federal civilian court. Uh, if it's not the case, though, here, if there's a dispute to be had, surely Spath has already expressed his views. Shouldn't he go to the Court of Military Commission Review? Right. They'll probably agree with him, but then it gets you to the D.C. Circuit. And then couldn't they grab all the issues? So I don't know. I mean, I, I think the cleaner vehicle might be just a pure petition for writ of mandamus, right, from Nashri himself. Right, saying, right. you know. But he needs a lawyer to I do know, it. Well, therein lies the rub, right? So so like the John Doe habeas case, right, where we, where we end up in a circle, right? Yeah. We're in a bit of a circle here, and it's not, I mean, I guess I have sort of, you know, someone, we need an adult in the room, right? I mean, and that's not to impugn any of the specific players here, but like someone's got to step up and say, these little itty-bitty flashpoints aside, What's really missing here is a vehicle for resolving the underlying ethical dispute. And so it didn't seem like we're, we're going to have one. I mean, as no. a matter of good government, there ought to be a vehicle. Instead, what we have is a, what do you call it, a multi-district cluster A multi-jurisdictional cluster, you know what. And so this is going to grind out through uh, multiple appeals back and forth in multiple districts, perhaps expanding to others. This is going to have, if nothing else, the effect of delaying the Nashiri proceedings, you know, for Indefinitely. who knows how much longer. And, and and maybe bleeding over to the other cases, too. Because well, that's that. OK, that's my next question for yeah. you. Why hasn't the 9-11 defense team immediately jumped in and said, hey, same problem for us. So we're all packing up shop, too. They don't, yeah, don't seem know. to be making that move. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if we just don't know what's happening yet. I th- So my understanding is that the issue in Nashiri is not purely limited to Nashri's case, but that there might be specific reasons why it's especially exacerbated in his case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that perhaps the 9-11 defense team is waiting for the resolution of that issue in the Nashri proceeding to sort of figure out their next steps. So the clock's ticking for them, because if I'm not mistaken, I think there was a press advisory saying that there was a pretrial proceeding scheduled for yep. early December. Yeah, so I, you know, maybe their hope is that this will be resolved by then. I mean, gosh, I sure hope it's resolved by then. What a mess. But I, I will say, I mean, I think so... Wherever you come down on the underlying ethical dispute, right, um, what is making this worse um, is Judge Spath issuing these orders to people who are not parties to the commissions. I I agree that issuing – I agree with that. That's a separate issue. Um, What about his original orders? I mean, if if you believe and take as his good faith belief that he has the authority to – to control the proceeding as to General Baker, that part to me seems different. Unless but, there's but, some reason right. to think like, no, it is it is beyond the reach of good faith to believe he thinks he has contempt powers in so, this case. So, wait, but there, second, I think you just said two different things, right? So let me try to break those apart, okay. right? There's the underlying question of who had the authority to allow the lawyers to go. Yes. And that's where I think you and I continue to disagree about whether the right answer is Baker or Spath, but where I would happily concede that reasonable minds could disagree. Right, but there's the separate issue of whether he has the power to hold Baker in contempt. And is it just clearly the case he has no power to, so to do that? So I think it's I think it depends on how you read it, right? I mean, so the 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 contempt statute I think quite clearly does not apply to what Baker did, right? And so then the question becomes, was he actually holding Baker in inherent contempt? Which then depends upon whether the military commission even has an inherent contempt power. You know, Marty Lederman I think has written a post about how. Um, the contrast between the powers of a military judge and a court-martial, which clearly includes inherent contempt, and the lack of similar provisions in the Military Commissions Act implies the absence of it. Implies perhaps the absence of it. By the way, Dave Glazier's uh, written a post that's going to come up at Lawfare pretty soon Ah. that takes into this. You know, Dave's obviously a close observer of these things, so that'll be worth checking out too. Um, So all this, right, so so those are the two big sort of merits questions back of all of this. And and that, if none of this other stuff were happening, it seems to me that what ought to happen is, so maybe 
passed wrong, it should go on appeal to the Court of Military Commission Review. Who knows what they'll do? As as you know, I feel it doesn't really matter. Anything they're doing needs to go up to the D.C. Circuit. We agree on that. That's a total waste of time. It's going to eventually get to the D.C. Circuit. Then we find out, A, is there a contempt power? And B, hopefully we can just get to the merits, too, right, and right. find who's out. Right. right? Yeah. Like, who's right? Who's actually right about this? And, and were these lawyers right to right, – you know, and, and, and indeed, regardless of who's right, right um, – because that's a fight about who makes the underlying decision. There's the, there's still the merits question. Yes. And yes. should the lawyers have been allowed to recuse, right? That is to say, was their recusal justified, whether according to Baker right. or Spath or us? Right, exactly. And then you got to have some kind of presumably in-camera proceeding right. about what was it exactly so, that made right. them so, think that there's an ethical issue. So I just – I mean I just if, – if you accept, as I think you and I both do, that this is heading to the D.C. Circuit one way or the other. Yeah. Why not just figure out how to get it there sooner? And just, you know. Yes, I, I completely agreed. I mean, I, I understand from the perspective of the defense team, why not to? But, like, from yeah. the perspective of, like, settling this issue and, and not having, you know, not seeing just how many district courts end up issuing habeas petitions against <laughs> Judge Spath. I mean. It's unbelievable. Um, All right. And apparently, by the way, he got mad because one of the lawyers called him colonel, not judge. And that was contemptible. I didn't know about that. Don't know about that one. It so, sounds so like some a, a, sensitivities. A, a more a, a more sort of um, one-sided reading of these events might also wonder if the end of this story isn't the reassignment of the case to a different judge. Interesting. But yeah, it's certainly possible. It, well, so I, all that's just to say, stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'm sure we will be talking about it next week. We'll see, we'll see how many habeas petitions we actually have by this time next week. Yeah, I, hope, I, I suspect those will blow over with none of these people actually being dragged off to but, but I will never be able to shake the irony that the first Guantanamo detainee of the Trump administration was General Baker. It's certainly bad optics. I, <laughs> I, I got to say, I, I, I don't love the way everyone has – I get it as a sort of a framing device. It's funny. It's a zinger. But uh, it, there are a few places, at least, where people seem to really be saying, like, no, he's the new Guantanamo detainee. It's like it is not <laughs> no. the same no, 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 thing, no. and it didn't help. Right. He, he, spent, uh, he, spent, he spent like 12 hours in his trailer. Well, it, it, no one's claiming there's any detention authority separate from contempt of court that's going on here. It's two apples and oranges. But – in any event, I, I understand the the inevitable uh, temptation to frame it that way. It's a zinger. Oy vey. Yes, indeed. As Matthew would say. Now, one last uh, thing to talk about before we get to the really important part, which is what is a funny movie? Mm. Let's talk about something that's not at all funny but is quite serious. And this question of uh, the policy and legal swamp that arises when you've got a terrorist captured inside the United States. And we, last week, Steve, we went into great detail on, on the Saipov scenario and all this business with the president initially agreeing with Lindsey Graham and John McCain that, yes, we, sh- we should look at enemy combatant detention for this guy. And then walking that back very quickly after having said a bunch of really in- incorrect things and inter- unfortunate things about the actually super effective criminal justice system. It's a laughing stock. It's weak. Yes, exactly. It's slow. It's not quick enough. Ah. What happens? What do you want? Don't don't go to the commissions if that's your concern. Summary Which, executions for everybody. You know, and again, we said this last week. In 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 fairness to the president, he walked it all back the next day on Twitter, saying, "Actually, I, I've been I've been told actually the, the federal criminal justice system is much faster." So let's. That use would that. have been a fun briefing to be the a fly on the wall for. Oh, can uh, you Mr. President, uh, here's what's actually happened at Guantanamo. So here's what's interesting to me: at the exact same time that this is unfolding. A second Benghazi suspect, Mustafa al-Imam, had been captured by special operators working apparently in conjunction with the FBI, but also Libyan authorities. They captured this guy. Steve, the reason they knew about Mustafa al-Imam, we know from a recent trial of Abu Qatala, the first Benghazi uh, capture, um, Qatala had blown the whistle on Mustafa al-Imam 
when talking to law enforcement interrogators after he was previously captured and brought out of uh, Benghazi. Wait, you mean he talked? He talked. Oh, and he, be- because because we sent him to a military commission, of course. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Because he was captured by the military, but then brought into the criminal justice system, and he <gasps> and he fingered Mustafa Al-Imam, who then gets the same treatment, special operations raid. They grab him. Both cases, Abu Qatala, Mustafa Al-Imam, paradigm examples of the hybrid model, which we talked about last week, is the Warsami model, where absolutely you can use military capacity to go into an area where law enforcement can't operate effectively and grab somebody. And you can have some period of interrogation without counsel in route back to the United States. In both cases, they took slow ships. Uh, Mustafa al mom's <laughs> slow boat. ships. Slow boat. Uh, it looks like it was something in the nature of a one-week cruise, which I think was shorter than Abu Qatala's. And, and probably precisely because in Abu Qatala's case... <laughs> they, had, they, had, they, had, they had mechanical problems. Well, and remember in Judge... Was it Judge Cooper's opinion that had said, well, okay, this... That'll work once, everybody. That'll work once. Um, every, so, every, what's the principle from tort law? Every, every dog gets one free bite? One free bite? <laughs> oh, scary. Well, this is not the first uh, slow boat, and it won't be the last. And it wasn't the longest slow boat, but it wasn't a short one either. It looks like the period of time, and we don't know when in route the clean team came in Miranda was applied and all the rest. But at some point in route, that happened. But at least there were many days. This wasn't like a Quarles public safety deal where there was an hour or maybe a couple of hours before the person was told you have the right to remain silent. And they actually were you know, prepared to honor that if the person didn't want to talk and wanted their, their counsel. Um, so does the hybrid model, which seems to be working reasonably well for these episodic captures overseas and where you you get the benefits of short-term military you get the benefits of the military model for capture Mm -hmm. you get the benefits of non-miranda non-council interrogation for a short period but then on the back end for the disposition mechanism we focus on the system that actually works and works well the criminal justice system Um, that seems to be in place in in non-controversial Roughly speaking, mm. relatively speaking, um, <laughs> you, as, you, as, you, you and I play in different bathtubs. Yeah, no, but do you deny that it's relatively much less controversial than what the reaction from Trump and Graham? Yes, That's yes, the yes, group yes, I'm yes, talking yes, about. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. So no one, no one says a word about it from right. the White House. Or, oh no, no, right. It's not. It's not like red meat to the to the sort of national security hawks. No, right. Even right. even though they end up in court a few days later in right. the civilian criminal justice in that laughing stock week slow civilian criminal justice right system. where where of course you know you get conviction after conviction. And Details, Bobby. Details. Right. The f- fake news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alternative facts. So, so uh, the question that raises is: it, Do we need the same? First, as a policy matter, do we want the same model to exist? Do we want the hybrid model at least for interrogation, not right. capture? Right. There's no, there's no need inside the United States ever for military capture unless you posit some fact pattern we've never seen before. Right. In, in you know certainly nothing we've seen today. No, right. Um, so it's only a question about: Do you want to have some sort of period where the high value interrogation group or special right. operations interrogators has like some. Period of time, right? And more than a few hours. Do you want that? If only and, there was a statute. And is there? And is that actually already on the books? And if it is, is it constitutional? Go. What is this? <laughs> what is the statute that exists for this purpose? Seemingly. Well, so for this purpose, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the purpose fight is interesting. But so, yeah, true. as that's part true. of the USA Patriot Act, um, enacted six weeks after 9/11, right? Congress enacted a provision. It was Section 412 of the Patriot Act. It's codified at 8 USC 1226. No parentheses. A um, and, Bobby, the statute provides for seven days 
um, that a non-citizen could be arrested and detained by the attorney generals, right? So contemplate civilian detention for seven days. Um, if, the, if the attorney general believes certain things about the non-citizen as a sort of national security threat, um, Bobby, seven days with no with no other sort of limits, right? There's no presentment rule built in. There's no nothing. Seven days of detention. And then at the end of seven days, the attorney general has to do one of three things. Um, he has to either release the detainee. He has to um, indict the detainee and transfer him to civilian criminal custody. Or he has to initiate removal proceedings against the detainee. Um, now, with regard to the third of those options, the statute goes on to say that if you're going to have potentially long-term detention of someone who was initially captured this way, he's entitled to periodic review every six months of the basis for his detention and whether he continues to pose a national security threat to the United States. So Congress actually contemplated at least something like this. And this was one of the, you know, the Patriot Act had a million things yeah. in it, and the vast majority of them didn't actually draw any attention, money laundering stuff. Um, but then you had sort of the the list varies, but most people had this sort of laundry list of the four to six or whatever things that really alarmed them. And this was on everybody's list as controversial and was subject to debate. And then no one ever talked about it again because it's never, it's been, never used. been used. It's never been used. It's never been used. And if anything, I mean, so Judge Motts, we talked last week about the Almari case, right? The oh. one non-citizen who was held as an enemy combatant in the U.S. Um, Judge Motts, in the original panel opinion in that case, relied on that statute to say, hey, Congress actually thought specifically about detaining non-citizen terrorism suspects on U.S. soil, and that was the authority they provided, not some broader, less well-regulated military detention authority. So the, the idea that there was don't construe the AUMF to allow this in-country detention in in Because then Section 412 would have been pointless. Yeah, yeah, that didn't quite it I didn't mean, quite fall for me, but I but the point it is does. it's there, right? And it's could never been be used. used now. Um, what in because it's never been used, it's never been constitutionally challenged, right. or at least it's not not that I'm aware of. It hasn't proceeded to no, an no, and, no, no, and, and indeed, I mean, so so um, Shireen Sanar, right, a professor of national security law at Stanford Law School, actually wrote her student note um, about the Section 412 whether it was constitutional, um, and Shireen raised, I think, a series of procedural and substantive due process objections to the statute. This assumes, of course, that it's applied to someone with due process rights. Right. Um, but let's take Saipov, who's been in the country right. for Clearly a number of years. Clearly had due process rights. Yeah. So the, the, Shireen's biggest concern is actually about folks who are sort of held and then released without further proceedings, right, on the theory that, like, they might never get a meaningful opportunity to challenge the legality of their detention. Well, that, but that happens all why, – why should that be a problem in this case as opposed to other circumstances where no, you're only I mean, held you could briefly? Then, you could then, but so briefly, though, but briefly usually means 48 hours, right, under the Supreme Court's, you know, sort of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah. One posit is there a due process difference between 48 hours and seven days? Do those extra five days right, count? Yeah. It's so, a question. So but, where does habeas fit in in the meantime? Well, Could so you? the problem is that, right, in, how would you file? First of all, the detention is not arguably unlawful during those seven days, right? It's expressly authorized. Right. And then by the time you release, even if it's for no reason, what's the remedy, right? So that's the procedural due process objection. The substantive due process objection is that the government wouldn't have had a sufficiently good basis for the detention. Of course, for the folks we're talking about, that may not be true, right? Because again, the statute requires periodic hearings mm -hmm. that show that the individual is still a national security threat, which I think is actually, at least in those cases, probably enough to satisfy whatever the due process clause would require. So I wrote an article that no one read in 2014 um, <laughs> called Detention After the, UM, the AUMF, which I talked about, I think, a couple of weeks ago, that actually suggested that you could move all of the Guantanamo cases onto this model, right, and sort of looked at Section 412 as a security detention paradigm, 
What you're suggesting, though, is a little different, right? Which is Section 412 would allow for the transitory yeah, yeah. authority to sort of codify the Warsame model. Right. It seems to me that, that and, I'm, and I'm, let's be clear, I'm not saying that this is what we should do. I'm just trying to understand how these pieces all yeah. fit together. The transitory model to, to sort of be the domestic basis, it's the domestic slow boat, right? That this, this USA Patriot Act provision functions like that slow boat coming yep. over from the Med in yep. these cases yep. for someone captured in the U.S. I think if you, as soon as you start talking about it as a longer-term model, the the level of constitutional difficulty obviously ramps up considerably. Totally. Um, I have not seen any hint from any administration, including this one, that anyone's planning to use this model. But when you see Senators Graham and McCain talking about the imperative of having some period of of un you know no counsel incommunicado detention where interrogation is taking place, mm-hmm. um, it seems like this is the sort of thing we might eventually see someone turn their attention to. Maybe. And, and, and then the question becomes, like, how useful is this authority potentially as a way of getting out of this? Okay, now, you mentioned how uh, uh, the paper that raised procedural and substantive due process challenges focused on those. Was there anything in that paper that talked about what would happen if you then transitioned into criminal prosecution and you had some kind of, you know, uh, prompt presentment type of challenge, no. some kind of speedy trial no, type I mean, we ta- I mean, we talked about this before, right, that the law and the scholarship is thoroughly underdeveloped on the sort of cross-roughing problems, mm-hmm. right? The the um, But, you know, listen, the I think the Second Circuit's um, Gailani decision is incredibly powerful for the government on the speedy trial question. A far longer period. Right, five years, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the presentment question, in an appropriate case, you know, we talked about this last week. I think a court probably would recognize limited circumstances in which presentment rules could be deferred. I think so, too. So I think the upshot of all this is there's actually an existing statutory authority no one ever talks about that could, you know, I, I'm not going to use, I'm I'm not going to use, I'm about to use the phrase lies about like a loaded weapon. That's pejorative. Why, makes, thank you, Justice yeah, Jackson. Yeah, exactly. Um, for good or ill, it's there already. And yeah. somebody may decide, you know what, let's use that. And, and just the brevity, if it's being used as I'm, I'm describing right. and anticipating it might be as a as a domestic land substitute for the slow boat. Right. If that's how it gets used, and like then, a presentment delay, like a seven day presentment. Yeah, delay. yeah. If it's used for those sorts of purposes, by the time any kind of mechanics of review get in place, right. some habeas, um, it'll it'll be over. You'll be the boat will have arrived in harbor. And, and the upside, I mean, so so I'm sure that I've I have I'm sure that if you know the the devout civil libertarians listening to us are, are yelling like, at quit, me right quit now. Quit talking about this, right? Right. Yeah. Um, the upside is, right, that if you embrace the Patriot Act, right, then you get seven days as the outside limit as opposed to, you know, whatever the judge, wh- whichever judge you get on the roster and their interpretation of what boats are especially slow. Embrace the Patriot Act could be the title of the podcast, too. Um, I, I like multi-jurisdictional <laughs> cluster, you know what. <laughs> it's, kind so, of the, it's kind of the same thing. All right. On so, that note, uh, should we turn to frivolity? Yeah, let's, let's slide in the mood here for those few who are still with us. Uh, Steve and I decided it's time to start running through our uh, favorites. Our, our comparative views on film. Because, you know, that, that will give you a sense of, of which one of us you should like more. Uh, <laughs> it's equal. Come on. Uh, of course it is. It's I, like the Lake Wobegon, right? All the children are above average. That's exactly us. All right. Uh, we're just going to start throwing out um, our choices. Three the top three comedies. Comedies. All right. So you want to start with number three? Uh, yeah, I didn't actually rank mine in a particular order. You didn't order. rank them? Well, what fun is that? No, they're, they're ranked relative to all the others I'm not going to mention. All right. Well, I will start with my my third favorite comedy of all time, which is I know a sort of easy, obvious choice, but apparently it's completely lost on my con law students. Animal House, classic, a truly solid choice. I cannot critique that. It's not it's not on my list of top three, but I think like as a matter of sort of pop culture knowledge, it's a, it's a it's a canonical film. So so my my criteria are like, can I watch this movie today? 
three times in a row and enjoy it all three times. Right. Right. Um, Animal House is everything about it is still funny. So much of it has seeped into our pop culture. You know, I quote it all the time. Like it's just it's brilliant. But you find your students have no idea. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> uh, professor, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I'm like. Zero point zero. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll come back at you with a more recent film, Best in Show. Yeah, okay. You know, with the that's more of the satire, like, you know, mockery sort of mockumentary. And and I gotta say, like, I was very torn on whether to say Spinal Tap, Best in Show, or Waiting for Guffman. I was not tempted to say uh, the whatever the the more recent one that made fun of the folk music era. um, Oh, um, uh, oh shoot! Something in the wind. Um, no, no, no. That's the song. Um, oh my gosh! What is the yeah. A mighty wind? A mighty wind. A mighty wind. <laughs> Which is good. But I think I think of of that genre of all those Christopher Guest films, uh, best in show. I, I could watch it again so and again. I will say my favorite mockumentary if we're doing this this ilk is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Um, mm. Amy Adams before she was famous. Before before um, she was Amy right? Adams. I mean, this is Drop Dead Gorgeous is is just hilarious. Well, I I think the best in show has some of the best yeah. staying power. All right. All right. Um, my number two, and I already gave this one away a little bit with a, a, a spoiler alert a couple a couple of, of minutes ago. Um, I'm sorry. I know this is a cop out. I know it's cheesy. I know it's on everyone's list, but it really is one of the great comedies of all time. The Princess Bride. Totally. Unimpeachable choice. Um, I actually Bobby's call. My choice is boring. By the way, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I, both again, canonical. Like everyone has to have seen it, has to know it. The the reason I hadn't thought about putting it on my list, I guess it's uh, it. I don't think of it as straight up comedy as much. Although there's a lot romance. Of, there's there's a little bit of romance and oh, you know just good on. fun, good adventure fun. But it but uh, you know Billy Crystal, um, Christopher Guest. Yeah, notice that it's it's got a hilarious Wallace Shawn. Yeah, Carrie no, Ellis, right? Pretty, Robin Wright before she was Robin Wright Penn. It was. It, it is solid. I like it. I mean, you know, I like it. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> think they're gonna think, think they'll gonna... make it? I'll uh, take a miracle. <laughs> miracle Max. I am not left-handed either. That Mandy Patinkin. Yeah, is I'm rock t- solid. T- no, that's good. Okay. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. I mean, like, how much of that movie is like? I mean, come on now. Oh yeah, no. It's the, okay. If we're talking, so here's a, here's a question: if Are we canon. talking quotability? Quotability is no, no, amazing. No, no. I'm, off talking, the charts, like, I'm talking like if I had to sit laugh down and watch a movie funny. three times in a row right now, right? Which yeah. movie would it be? And would you laugh out loud the whole time? I really yeah. would. Okay, now I was really torn on this next. Andre one. the Giant, right? Uh, anybody want the peanut? Right. Stop rhyming, and I mean it. <laughs> anybody want a peanut? <laughs> He's the best. I, I, I may, I may identify with that character just a little bit. Andre, <laughs> yeah. I loved watching him growing up. Hello, lady. Vizini. I don't think that word means what he thinks it means. No. All right. Um, how about this? This is this is my attempt to kind of reach outside the boundaries. Raising Arizona. Interesting. It's it's bolder it, choice. It, it's not laugh out loud funny the whole way, right. but there are moments, moments of extreme hilarity. Moments of yeah. Okay. Boy, you got a panty on your head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a little bit on the weird dimension. That, that, you're weird and sad. You're, so, so I, I guess what we're seeing is I'm sort of a conventional laugh out loud person, and you're a sort of satire weird like <laughs> on the fringes. Person. We'll see. We'll see with my final choice, which actually ah. is my number one. So, okay. so, so you can so so. Let's so have flip it. around. We'll flip it around. Something about Mary. Hmm. I think that movie is laugh out loud 
extremely funny because it's so raw and wrong. It's in so some uncomfortable. Ways. Exactly, and it makes you laugh so damn. So hard. you're like Karen. All right. So so Karen loves <laughs> Veep, right? Okay. And she loves Veep because it's like so uncomfortable. Exactly. And I hate it because it's, it's so, so uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Like, I don't like being uncomfortable <laughs> when I'm watching television. Like I want my yeah, fiction yeah. to not be like you know, ouch, to not hurt. I got you. I got you. Okay. So let's see if your number one choice fits that description. By far the greatest movie of all time. The greatest well, movie ever made. Not I just, just comedy. I just don't think there's any question about this oh my gosh coming to america oh that's good that's Eddie a Murphy. good choice okay i'm just i'm just saying it right now as a new yorker growing up in the 1980s like <laughs> there is just something completely like perfect about your that love movie. of queens as a, as a borough all things right my love of queens <laughs> right you, you know <laughs> where else would a man find a wife suitable for the king you know i love the the thing i love the recurring game I, mean, I can't quote all the good lines because they're all like not pg no they're super not pg um the whole thing with mcdowell's ah. they've got the golden arches i have the golden arch right <laughs> we both have operations we both manual. have we both have two buns right two two patties right uh, all uh the, the special sauce right um but their buns have sesame seeds yeah. Yeah, totally sesame different. Seeds. All right, so that's good. Although it raises the question, Lisa, the boy has his own money. We and when a- I say the boy has got his own money, <laughs> I mean the boy has got his own <laughs> money. And by the way, Cuba Gooding Jr. first credit. Uh, he's sitting on the barber. He's one chair. of the barber. No, he's uh, sitting he's on the chair getting his haircut. Oh, that's great. With no lines. But we could have a whole genre we may have switched to of uh, the best Eddie Murphy films because I'm not even sure that's the funniest Eddie Murphy film. Oh, those are fighting words. Trading places. So trading places. Listen, trading places is obviously. Which, by the way, they're connected, right? Are, you know how. So, no, no, right. So, yeah. right. You know, we're, we're back, Mortimer. Mortimer. I'm still not talking to you. <laughs> no, no, right. So, right. So there's the, they're the bums, right? Who Eddie yes, Murphy gives all yes. the money to, right? No, outside totally. of Tavern on the Green or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, so they're totally connected. But coming to America is just so much. Like trading places is a fun movie. Coming to yeah. America is a fall off the couch, laugh out loud. Good morning, my neighbors. Hey, F you. Yes, yes, F you too. Oh, that is good. That is good. I will remember this moment for the rest of my life. <laughs> Who is that? Oh, just a man I met in the bathroom. Bathroom. No, that's really good. All right, I'm with you. That that deserves that deserves a top ranking somewhere. Come on now. Yeah, I, I would go watch that right now. I would just I would I would stop when I'm I would like not. What am I supposed to do? I'm, I would like not go to the appointments committee meeting today and just I, watch coming to America. Uh, you know, we're both on appointments. It's tempting to play hooky, but I guess we shouldn't. We always, but I will say this: the other night, Trading Places was on. Uh. We're flipping channels. It's it's that time the kids are asleep. Yeah. We really should go to bed or do work or watch something new that we've never seen before, right. like you know the next Stranger Things right. episode preview or or reviews coming later, friends. Uh, and instead, we we caught the beginning of Trading Places. And then we had to watch the whole thing. And it, I got to say, like a lot of the films, including some of the ones you mentioned, you realize like, wow, there's some stuff I didn't remember that like. Is does not it talk about uncomfortable because yes. it's just how our norms of what's yes. okay to make fun of yes. have changed so much. Yes. Um, certainly, Trading Places has its share of that. But the brilliance of Eddie Murphy as a comedian, you know, his whole bit about the court of blood technique, everything about his character <laughs> is so damn funny. Well, listen, I mean, the he plays like six characters coming to America. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, aha. And Arsenio, aha. let's give credit to poor old Arsenio Hall Arsenio who didn't Hall. have the lasting effect, but he's pretty good in that movie too. It's quite a cast. I mean, you yeah, know, it's it's, we could go on and on and on. I mean, uh, James Earl Jones, right, has a cameo. Yep. Oh, King yeah. King Joffer. King Jagus. All right. Well, okay. Speaking of going on and on, I guess we have. So, all right. So go watch Code to America, everybody. I guess those weird movies Bobby likes too. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we'll talk to you next week. Adios. Stay safe out there.